Um, that is just fantastic. Um, it's, it's amazing to hear from the Lord's people and how God is constantly at work and He is speaking to us and teaching us. And, um, you know, I was praying and thinking about it this week to, to have people give opportunity for people to testify about that. And, you know, it was not planned. I didn't speak to any of those three people before the time. So it's really amazing to see also how God, through what they have just said, how that, I believe, of course, connects with our overall message and passage we're going to look at today. And so, with that being said, let us turn to the book of Jonah. We are very slowly working through uh, the book of Jonah. It's, there's only four chapters in Jonah, and we're, we're taking our time. I think there are nine uh, sermons, so we are on number four. And it's an amazing book to, to go and read and to see what God has for us there. If you think about that, this book is almost, it's almost 3,000 years old. I think to be precise, maybe something like 2,793 years. Um, I think, I believe Jonah's um, ministry started 793 years before Christ. But just how it applies to us in our lives Today, And I'm going to read again for us this morning from the first verse, because if I just jump into this morning's verses that I'm teaching from, which, which are verses 7 to 10, uh, it's not going to give us the, the, the best context. So um, let's read together. It will not be on the screen. And yeah, I'm going to read. It says there, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they hauled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And this morning's verse or focus from verse 7 on. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? 
For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Our sermon, sermon title this morning is the born again identity. And I'm going to give us one main idea. And the idea is this, that you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, if you didn't get it from that title, it's a bit of a wordplay on a movie. The Born Identity. How many of you remember that movie starring Matt Damon from 2002, right? Okay. I was thinking about it this week as I was on my bike, mountain biking, praying about the sermon. It just hit me that, hey, Jonah's story is very much like the Born Identity. And then I had to go figure out and just see, well, how exactly can that be? Well, I, I did a bit of reading because I haven't watched the movie in, in quite a while. But basically, The Born Identity is this action thriller film starring Matt Damon. And he plays the role of Jason Bourne, who is a man that suffers from psychogenic amnesia. And he is attempting to discover his true identity. Because what happens in the opening scene is it's kind of like a reverse scene of Jonah, right? Um, it, they are in the Mediterranean Sea in the opening uh, scene. There is a, a fishing vessel or a ship. And it's rough seas. There's a storm. And then Matt Damon or Jason Bourne's body is floating on the surface of the sea. And then the fishermen, they, they identify this body. They drag him in. They think he's, he's dead, but he's actually not dead. He, he recuperates. But then he suffers from this amnesia. Without an identity or background. And the fishermen ask him, listen, who are you? Where do you come from? What on earth? How did this happen to you? And the only thing that Jason Bourne knows about himself is he's got these extraordinary fighting skills. He's got jiu-jitsu or kung fu or something, right? Like he's dangerous. Like when he gets into trouble, it's like it just kicks in. He just sorts people out. Um, when he's around other people that are maybe talking Russian or different languages, all of a sudden he's fluent in those languages. And so this freaks him out, right? Like he's got amnesia, he doesn't know who he is, but he knows these talents and these gifts or, you know, what he has. And so he's on this desperate search to find out what is really going on. And so the movie goes on to follow Jason Bourne's journey and then... He figures out that he is an ex-CIA agent who was sent on a mission to assassinate a political leader, but he failed at that mission. And now the CIA is out to get him. They need to kill him. And so Jason Bourne, in the end, wants to get rid of this old life that he lived. He does not want to live in that old identity that he had as a CIA agent. And the movie ends in that way where he's now pursuing a new life. And he tells these CIA agents not to follow him. Now, the, the story of Jonah is similar, I believe, to Jason Bourne. Because we see that Jonah is kind of like a, a kind of Jason Bourne. He's sent on a mission by God to go and preach to this city of Nineveh. Call them out on their evil. But he fails at this mission. Or initially he fails, right? Like he's, he's disobedient. He fails to go and deliver this message 
that God had for God's own enemies, or so the people of Israel thought. Because these people were, of course, the enemies of Israel. And we see that Jonah, similarly to Jason Bourne, struggles with his identity. He, he finds himself in today's passage in an identity crisis. Like, he doesn't know really who he is. He's forgotten his true self. He thought he knew who he was and who he is. And so those questions come at him. So let us look at, at verse 7 to start off. At what exactly happens and why. In verse 7 we read this. They said to one another. These are now the sailors, the mariners. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So we know from last week's verses, verses 5 and 6, that these pagans, they responded in a more godly way. They actually prayed while Jonah didn't pray. They realized that this was the mother of all sea storms. And it's caused by a deity. It's caused by a divine person at work while Jonah is asleep. He's apathetic. He couldn't care less. And we, of course, learned from last week that Jonah is sent to this great city of Nineveh, which I also said it is modern-day Mosul or modern-day Iraq. It's in Iraq. So it's, it's those people that are the enemies of the north. It's, it's those people that are most despised. They are most threatening to the nation of Israel. And the big idea that I want to say to us is what we get out of that is the people of God always have an enemy. The people of God always have an enemy. But it's not the enemy that we think it is. You see, Jonah was missing the fact that it wasn't necessarily Nineveh or these people from Syria that were the, was the enemy. And it was missing the fact that there is a greater evil, a greater enemy at work behind everything. And it's true to this day. And it's the same enemy that had been at work since the first people were created in the image and likeness of God. It's that serpent. It is that voice of the enemy of God, Satan, who whispers, did God really say, did God really tell you to go to Nineveh, Jonah? Does God really want you to go and preach to these people who are so immoral, who are living a life that is despicable? How can God ever be so gracious and merciful to them? That is the same voice that has a lot of power over not just Christians or unbelievers, but both. Both Christians and unbelievers are on the same boat, I believe, in today's world. Because we have been sold the lie. And this is how the enemy traps us, through lies, through sin. We have been sold the lie that our enemy is the political powers. It's, it's this political party. It's this political leader. It's Trump. He's the problem. No, no, no. It's Biden now. Or it's Trudeau. Look what he's done again. He's our enemy. Or it's these guys that are pushing the vaccines. Or those who couldn't care less. 
Or our enemies are these people who want to push upon us their religious law or their spirituality. And we are totally blinded by the fact that the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against powers and principalities in the air. Who is at work? And so the church finds itself in a situation where we are battling, we are fighting against either one another or against the world. It's us against them. While all the the time we are missing where the battle is actually really won or lost in the spirit. And so no wonder we find ourselves tired and weary. Like Jonah, who's tired and weary. He's like, I want to just sleep. And he has been taken by the father of the lies. Who has come to kill, steal and to destroy. Jesus puts it this way in John 10 verse 10. Jesus says, and he's speaking about Satan. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see this enemy. That Jesus is talking about here. And his demonic powers at work. On this earth. As I would mentioned. It's not just at work trying to deceive. Or tempt Christians. But he is at work. Keeping those whose eyes have not been opened to the truth. Keeping them in bondage. Keeping them captive. Because all people. Have been created in the image and likeness of God. And that is what Jonah missed. Jonah missed the fact that it's not just one people group that God wants to see come and have a relationship with him, but all nations, all people. And in the the book of Jonah, we see that Jonah, in the end, is actually his greatest enemy. He's, He's an enemy to himself because he allows Satan through sin to dictate What decisions he is making through his pride and prejudice. And that is at work in this text and it's still at work in our our lives. We know Jonah fell asleep while the pagans, they are the ones who's actually trying to save lives. They are these outcasts, these filthy unbelievers that Jonah wasn't even supposed to be with. And so it's super ironic. Jonah flees from having to do what God has called him to do, to go to those people. But it's so ironic how he ends up on a ship with the same people he was actually called to go to. They were pagans. They were outcasts. And so... After they turn to their own gods and they see nothing is, hap- is happening, this doesn't work, it's failed, they put one and one together. They're like, listen, there's this dude sleeping down there, we're figuring something out. We've got a sneaky feeling what's happening here is caused through something he has maybe done. And so they, they turn to this ancient practice of casting lots. And we read about this many times in the Bible, when there are big decisions to be made or someone has to be chosen, they cast lots. It's kind of like a type of rock, paper, scissors. And Timothy Keller writes that it's most probably having used 
sticks or straws where they wrote the names of each person on and they maybe put it in, in the hat or some kind of container and then they go pull. And, and the name that they pull, of course, is Jonah. And this is a way in which they practice kind of like figuring out what the gods were leading them into. And it's really amazing how God uses this method to sovereignly still pursue Jonah. Right? It's amazing. And I believe at this point Jonah's eyes opens because he looks at how they are doing this and boom, it's like man. It's only God that would have known that it is me. Unless those sailors were really sneaky and they used five sticks and they very sneakily just wrote Jonah's name on all five. And when they pulled it, oh, Jonah, yeah, it's you, you. Okay? No, but we, we trust that they followed the procedures. And I was thinking about that, man. It, we would have, have a lot more peace maybe in our politics and in our world if we maybe did this. Just think about that. Just sovereignly giving it up in election time. Okay, in our communities, we, we initially present people who are maybe humble. They're servants. We love them. They have integrity. There's accountability. And we, we place them up and then we just cast lots. And whoever is chosen, we, we've got peace because it's sovereignly determined. But we... In our day and age, have reserved to us making the choice. So we vote. But in the end, God is so even sovereign of that. Like even when we pick the political leaders or the political leaders that come into power are not the ones we voted for, guess what? The Bible says they are there by the authority of God. God preordained it. Even if we don't like them. Even if they are very immoral. Even if we think they are our enemies. The question is, you know, what, what is the Christian life supposed to look like when, it, when we do have big decisions to make? You know, what, what is casting lots? What, what does that look like for us today? Well, there is a situation in the New Testament where they still practice this. In Acts 1 verse 23 to 26, we see the disciples or the apostles have to choose a new apostle. And then they bring up two that they put forward. It says in Acts 1 verse 23 to 26. I'm not sure if you have it there, Andrew. We are, ex okay, there we go. Okay, it says there, they put forward two, Joseph and Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. So they asked God to work through their method. To take place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And in the end committed suicide, right? And now we see they say in verse 26, they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. By what means are we currently making decisions? If we look at how they go about on this boat, having to figure out who is to blame for all of this. Do we follow the route of the, the pagans? Because if we think about the pagans' way, it's a bit of a karma type of idea. We do give them a lot of credit. They reacted in a spiritual way. They are praying. But it's kind of like thinking, well, someone is to blame. It's, it's a mixture of karma, uh, this this 
trouble has come on us because someone has done something really bad. And it's a mixture of that kind of like blame-shifting, scapegoating culture that we're in. I need to blame someone for the trouble that's come upon me. I need to blame someone for the poverty that I'm in. And it's taking away that personal responsibility for people's decisions. It's kind of like that mindset. And we have to ask ourselves, listen, how are we going about? Are we just casting lots? Are we doing kind of like the same thing? Are we just making decisions on what I'm supposed to do, what God is telling me based on what I'm feeling? Or this kind of like a theology or spirituality of like, well, the answer is in you. Go look deep within you. You'll find it. You'll find your joy. You'll find your purpose. You'll find the direction. And I believe our final and best picture that we need to look at is actually out of Acts 13 when it comes to being obedient and following and looking for what God has for us. Acts 13 verses 2 to 3. We see a better picture where we do not have to cast lots and be like, whoa, I'm just throwing the dice at something. It's after the Holy Spirit has, of course, poured out onto all flesh in the church. And it says there, in Acts 13, verses 2 to 3, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Listen to that. How's that for spiritual lot casting? Worshiping, fasting, and praying. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Are we actually looking to hear from God, looking to have Him help us make decisions on where we're going to go or to figure out life based on this kind of like a principle where we're seeking His face through prayer and fasting? Or did we just every day go with what I'm feeling? If I'm not happy about someone else in my life, my spouse or my employer or my co-workers that I work with, do I just go, well, listen, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm pulling the plug. This is just getting too hard. It's too messy. Or do I actually trust that God has me in the, this boat, in this vessel, in this time, now, and He's sovereignly in charge. He just wants me to press in with others, with Him being the focus. Because you see, Jonah, even after the captain called him to pray, he doesn't do that. He doesn't pray. He doesn't, he doesn't reveal who he really is until God sovereignly, through this casting of lots system, points the finger at him and says, listen, you, I have spoken to you. And he chooses to keep silent. And so we read on, and this is going to be driving home the main point of being born again because it's about identity. There's an identity crisis here. Jonah is slow to speak up. He's slow to pray because he's forgotten his true self. We read on in verses 8 to 10 in Jonah 1. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this what you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. The pagan sailors found their scapegoat. They found the one they are looking to blame. 
They found the systemic problem, the systemic institution that has been allowing the racism and the injustice to carry on. So they're, they're satisfied, but not totally. Because what he reveals to them makes them afraid. But it's really interesting to see how they persecute or not persecute him. Am I still on you? Okay, sorry. Sounded like a... Sorry, I'm getting a little bit work up, worked up here and there. Um, <laughs> hope you guys can take it. Um, but, but they interrogate. That's the word I'm looking for. They don't persecute him yet. Okay, they interrogate him in, in a specific fashion. And Timothy Keller notes this. That is really interesting. They ask these three questions or four questions. And it's basically about his occupation. So his work, his country, his nationality, and his ethnicity. Sorry, three questions. And the way that he answers that, he answers it in reverse, but he answers it just giving two answers. He starts first with his ethnicity, with his race. And then he goes to his religion, which is indicative of the fact that he was placing a heavy emphasis on his ethnicity, a superior race. We have been chosen. We are the chosen ones. Which gives us an indication of why he did not want to travel to Nineveh in the first place. That he was looking at them as being inferior. And we've got to look at that and ask, how many times do we perhaps have that kind of like notion as Christians? Thinking that we are maybe in our workplace in a better position than our colleagues who are unbelievers. Or even as Christians, how many times do we have that same notion and we revert back to our ethnicity, our roots, and we use that as an excuse to say, well, listen, I'm not this kind of Christian. Yes, you South Africans that come from wherever South Africa is here to Canada, you get so worked up, you're so passionate. Yeah, we're Canadians. We're very reserved. And we don't get very excited. You know, we know our salvation story. We know it's faith in Jesus. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. But man, yeah, we're not that charismatic. Until the Canucks lose the Stanley Cup, right? <laughs> then we see, woo, there's some passion. Huh? Let's jump on cars, burn stuff, scream. Or we here in Canada, I'm a Canadian, by the way. I do come from South Africa, but I, I'm a Canadian now. But we so easily look across the border and we, we look at our, our southern neighbors and we look at, at our brothers and sisters there and, and we're like, yeah, those Christians, they just don't get it, do they? We do that. I hear that so many times. I say that so many times. We're like, oh boy, oh, the states, what's going to happen there? Lord, dear Lord, help them. And we fall into the same trap as Jonah. We make it about our race and our ethnicity when actually God's calling goes deeper than that. It's not about race. It's not about ethnicity. It's about those who had, he, he had created in his image and likeness. All nations, all peoples to be reached. I want to quickly share with you just 
why this speaks so much to my heart. And it's a little bit of a history lesson. And I, and I was really thinking and praying about this, whether I should share this. Because on Thursday, of course, we had the Truth and Reconciliation Day. Uh, that's looking back at the, the past of the indigenous people here in Canada. And all of the hardship and, and trials that they had gone through. And the, the origin, of course, of that term, truth and reconciliation, comes out of South Africa, if you did not know. It's because of the history of South Africa having had a similar history and past through the apartheid regime. And, and after 1994, when Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa, they established a truth and reconciliation commission that was led by the Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a Christian, to bring reconciliation between people in South Africa, but specifically to, to pursue the truth of what happened under a discriminatory regime, a racially prejudiced regime. Now, the reason or the history about that in South Africa is, and I want to try and keep this brief, but the long and the short is, my people, my ethnicity, my roots are out of Europe. Netherlands, the Dutch, German, French, a whole conglomerate of people that after the Reformation, I believe that happened in the 16th century, they were persecuted by the Catholic Church and they had to flee. And many people that were not Christians looked for opportunities and they were working for companies such as the East Indian Trading Company that was a, a cargo ship company that were taking, they were trying to figure out a, a trading route from Europe to Asia. And so they were traveling past Africa. This was before the Suez Canal. And so my people come from that descent, but they settled in South Africa. They became farmers. And a term in Afrikaans for farmers is boer. And so a boer or boer is my ethnicity. They were common people. They were just everyday people that wanted to farm. And then the long and the short is, is that after the Dutch colony comes... The British, they settle in the Cape. They take over and they start making it very difficult for my people, the Boers, to farm, to practice what they believe is right and true because they were Christians. And so my people traveled all the way up over mountains with ox wagons. They faced lots of dangers. They faced ethnic or indigenous people or tribes. And there were battles. Some battles they lost, but... The majority of those battles they won because they had the guns, even though they were by far the minority. But they won those battles, they made treaties with the people, and then they settled in the rest of South Africa. And you know what happened a couple of hundred years after that? They strike gold and diamonds. And who takes notice? The British Empire. And so we see in history there are two wars. There's the Anglo-Boer War between the Boers, who are just... Normal folk, they, they shoot guns at targets to practice for the, the war. They beat the British in the first Anglo-Boer War. And they believe God sovereignly gave them that victory, just as God had sovereignly led them from the southernmost point of Africa towards the rest of South Africa. And then Queen Victoria says, this is, this is atrocious. How can these Boers, how can these Afrikaners defeat us? So they send hundreds of thousands of British soldiers. And then they eventually win the second Anglo-Boer War at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. 
And do you know how they win it? By playing dirty. They employ a policy that's called the scorched earth policy, where the soldiers go onto the lands, the farmlands of the Boers. They take the women and children captive, they burn their houses, they burn the lands, they kill the stock, and they put those people in concentration camps. This is a historical fact. The end result is that 26,000 women and children of my ethnicities, my ethnicity, my race, is killed. And the concentration camps become the blueprint for Adolf Hitler's concentration camps. You can go and read this. This is not always recorded or talked about, especially in Canada, because of the fact that Canada was involved in that war. That's my background. Those are my people. But you know what is the, the saddest thing after that? Is after that Second World or Second Anglo-Boer War, the Afrikaner people develop even a stronger belief and faith that they are a superior race. They are a minority group and they have this faith in God that they turn to Afrikaner nationalism. They believe they can rise from their ashes. They build themselves up. They start schools. They start educating themselves. And they are a faithful nation, faithful to God. But a handful of political leaders get hold of a, an extreme Calvinistic view and they start pursuing an ideology of them having to be separated from other people and tribes. And the history is that after that war, and as the Afrikaner is building themselves up under the British regime, they become more and more powerful. They lift themselves up above the minority or the majority of the African people in, in South Africa until they get political power. And you know what happens? Once they were oppressed, now they become the oppressors. Now, not everyone, of course, but this is a political ideology. A political ideology. Now, why do I share that? Because being a South African or an Afrikaner ethnically, I find myself that I too can very quickly be prejudicial or I have a preconceived idea about who I am and a superiority which is not based on the gospel. I try and answer the questions that Jonah has also faced about who I am. What is my occupation? Where do I come from? And I, I find it in the wrong area, the wrong roots. And I miss the fact that Jesus is the one who gives me my true identity as a born-again identity. A born-again identity. And this born-again identity I need because I am in the same boat as every other ethnicity, every other people group in this world. There's currently multiple storms, and there will be many more storms to come, but I find myself in the boat knowing that Jesus Christ actually is the one who is overall, in all, sovereign, in control. And he has a calling on my life, but it needs to happen in a new identity of a born-again identity. 
In Matthew 24, Jesus says this. It's a bit of a long passage. I don't have it there on screen. But the, the, the gist of it is that Jesus warns. He says, many will come in my name and deceive people. Wars and rumors of wars will come. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Famines, earthquakes, plagues are going to come. And he warns us, the storms, you are, you are in the storm. False prophets will come. Lawlessness will increase. But then he says this. He says, but the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world. And then the end will come. The only way we can actually pursue that and see that happen. To see the end come. Is if we pursue what Jesus' mission for us is. The gospel of the kingdom needs to be proclaimed. And the only way to do that is according to John 3, 3. I'm putting it up on screen. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's talking to a guy who's, who's got his theology 101, 201, 301, his PhD in apologetics. And he's telling that guy, listen, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is perplexed. He's like, what on earth do you mean? And this is what it means. Philippians 3.20, when Apostle Paul says this, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it await, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When I'm born again, it means that I, I bid everything goodbye. I die to self. I die to my ethnicity. I die to my desires. I die to what I think I'm defined by. I die to the money that I'm pursuing. I'm dying to all the properties that I'm trying to buy and make a profit of. I'm dying to this occupation that I believe is going to fulfill me. I die towards my spouse that I think is going to fulfill me and provide everything that I need. I die to all of these things and I say I die so that I can serve and love Jesus Christ with my whole heart, with my whole soul, and with all the might that I have. Can I get an amen? Goodness me. <laughs> that is to be born again. My question this morning to us, Rock Church, those of us that are sitting here, do you realize you might have been sitting in church your whole life and you might not even be born again? I'm not saying asking that to create doubt about your salvation, but ask yourself that question. Do you show the fruit that Jesus talks about? Those that are planted in Him will bear good fruit. Are we walking in obedience? Are we covenanting with Him and His people? Ways in which that needs to happen and can happen, and I want to encourage us to think about in the next coming month is, in the month of October, here at the Rock Church, we encourage people to walk in obedience to Christ through membership. Where are you at with that? We encourage people to walk in obedience with regards to baptism. Baptism into Jesus Christ. Being immersed and dying to the self. As that picture of, I die. This old self is dead. That, that self that was relying on my ethnicity is now dead. But I rise as a new person. The born again identity where I pursue what God has for me by spirit. Where are you with that? Those are little steps. That, and, and your decision about that. Your, that will give an indication of whether or not you truly want to pursue Jesus and his kingdom. Consider that this morning, church. These are dire times. These are desperate times. 
I'm preaching to myself. I need to wake up. It's the same theme as last week. We need to wake up to a born-again identity. The worship uh, team, Nick and Jolene, can come up, and I'm going to pray for us. But let us, let us consider this. Let us consider this word of Jesus' heart for us to realize that this world and what it promises is nothing in comparison to the eternity and the eternal destination we have. The, the destination and the citizenship we can now already have. It's not about just receiving it one day, but it is about receiving it now already by His Spirit. I'm going to pray for us. And then I want to encourage us through worship, through this last song, let's respond. If there is anyone today, maybe this is your first ever situation where you're confronted with this, that you have not been born again. You have not placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you have not been filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe today is that day. And I want to encourage you, we will be here afterwards. I will be here up front. Please let us pray with you. Let me pray.